to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. It's Sermon Sunday, so today we will post the sermon that was preached this morning at Christ Church Conway. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me now to John chapter 20. We're actually going to read not just verses 1 through 10, but we're going to read verses 1 through 23. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the faith cloth, which had been on Jesus, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Most gracious Father, I ask that you would add by your Spirit your blessing to this reading of your word. 
Indeed, that you would illumine our hearts and minds that we could rightly understand and believe your word, that we might be strengthened in our faith, that we might be given the hope of the resurrection even this morning. We ask in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, if you were able to be with us either in person or online for our Good Friday service just a couple of days ago, we spent time reflecting on the reality of the death of Christ. And we considered the death of Christ as a fulfilling death and a compelling death and an effective death. And we spent some time thinking about those categories and what that meant for us, what the death of Christ meant for us. Well, this morning as we continue the story of Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. And we're going to spend time this morning reflecting on the reality and the meaning of the resurrection around those same headings. The fulfilling resurrection, a compelling resurrection, and an effective resurrection. So first of all, as we think about this as a fulfilling resurrection, we see there in verse 9 that after the disciples had made their way to the tomb, and and let's just pause and enjoy for just a second how John tells the story in his gospel. He, He reminds us that he's the one, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He reminds us that they were both running, but Peter got there first, or John got there first. He, he reminds us of all of these details. Just, I'm the one who looked in and believed. He, it, it, the way he tells the story is so fantastically self-centered, it's comical. And frankly, it gives us some relief knowing that Yes, you can be that fixated on yourself and still have good standing in Jesus Christ. But when we get down to verse 9, it says, As yet, they had not understood the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. John shows up, he goes into the tomb, he he sees that it is in fact empty, and he tells us that he saw and believed, because up to this point... They didn't get it. They didn't get the scriptures that that reminded them that Jesus must die, that the Messiah must die and rise again. But now, seeing the empty tomb, things start to fall into place, at least at this point for John. It seems in John's telling of the gospel, these pieces didn't quite fall into place for Peter just yet. That was to come. He was a little slow on the uptake, but John was starting to get it. He had to rise again. And he did. We see this in what we read earlier from Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Yes, Jesus really died. Yes, he was really buried in the tomb. All of that really happened. But he wasn't abandoned to Sheol. He wasn't abandoned to the place of of the dead. His soul saw no corruption for Easter was coming. And now John and Peter and Mary Magdalene see that Easter has in fact come. The resurrection is a reality and they are the first witnesses to it. In Isaiah 53.10, we read, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Here's this incredible prophecy from Isaiah so far back in history where he reminds us that it is both the Lord's will, it was both God's will to crush the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, but also that this one who was crushed according to the Lord's will would also see his offspring. That in his hands, the Lord's will would in fact prosper. That his days would be prolonged. See, again, what we see when we look at the reality of the resurrection, just like the reality of the death of Christ, is that this is a fulfillment of what had been announced in Scripture. That Jesus would do something, that he would strike a fatal blow and in the process would receive a fatal blow as well, but victory would be his ultimately. Even if we go all the way back to the garden, we read that the serpent would crush his hill, but he would crush the serpent's head. There would be this battle. There there would be blows exchanged. But Christ would strike the more fatal blow. He would gain the victory over the serpent for the woman and all of her offspring. And so when they see that the tomb is empty, all of these pieces for John start to fall into place and he believes. But it's not just that the Old Testament was fulfilled in this moment. For we read in Luke 24, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. See, Jesus had been telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen. This is how this is going to go down. I am going to be killed but I'm also going to rise again from the dead. I am going to face death. That is going to happen. My suffering will come, but so will my victory over sin and death. And if you remember, the disciples weren't always on board with this plan of Jesus to be killed and to rise. And so they didn't quite get it. And so in Luke's account where we get different details, it's not a different story. It's just that each gospel writer includes different details of the story. They're not contradicting each other, but there we're told that they were reminded by the angel, remember what he told you. Jesus' resurrection was a fulfilling resurrection because it also showed that he was the prophet who spoke truly. Remember what he told us about how to measure a prophet. Hear what he says and see if what he says happens. Jesus said, I will die and rise again. A very, very bold prophecy. And it happened. Showing him to be the true prophet like Moses, the one whom we should listen to. 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul understood that what Jesus' death and resurrection did was fulfill all righteousness, fulfill all Scripture. In John 19, verse 21, we read also that His death and resurrection fulfilled the Father's plan for Him. Saying that just as my Father sent me, in other words, implying, recognizing that this is what I came to do. This was no accident. My Father had not lost control of the situation. This is why I came. That I might die and rise in victory over sin and death. Jesus' death was a fulfilling Resurrect death and his resurrection was a fulfilling resurrection because it fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. It fulfilled his own prophetic claims about his ministry and it fulfilled the work that the Father sent him to do. And so we go to Romans 6 to hear what this means for us. And I'll Spill the beans now. This is going to be my one point of application at the end of every point of this sermon. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is the application of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That no longer, if we are in Christ, are we dead in sin. But now, if we are in Him, we are dead to sin. It has no power over us. It has no authority. It will come at us with everything it has, with all of the temptation and all of that. But it has no word truly to speak about us. For we are dead to it. And alive in Christ Jesus. The one who continues to live to intercede for us. So that's how the resurrection should teach us to think about ourselves. That if Christ died for sin and rose in victory and fulfillment of Scripture, so now we consider ourselves in those terms. No longer dead in sin, but dead to sin. No longer separated from God because of our sin, but united to Christ and so alive to God in Christ Jesus. United to Him by faith. The second thing we see in this story is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a compelling resurrection. That that means that it actually convinced them that He really did rise again. 
Now, it's important for us to to remember as we think about this, because sometimes people will will say, well, they didn't know better. They were, you know, had these pre-scientific minds and thoughts. But, I mean, yes, they were pre-scientific method and all of that. I quite understand that. But they were far more familiar with death than any of us in this room are. They, They knew when someone was dead or not. They knew how to figure that out. They weren't complete imbeciles with all of these people laying around that they weren't sure they are dead or just good and asleep. So Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she's expecting to find him there. And he's gone. And she wasn't immediately... She wasn't immediately compelled. Oh, he's risen. No, no, no. Her first response is, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. Her first thought was somebody has moved him. And this would have been a fair thought. The the Jews were very concerned about a conspiracy along the lines of the disciples coming and stealing the body and being like, ta-da! He rose, just like he said. Interesting that they were aware and understanding of his prophecies about his resurrection, it seems, to a certain degree, more than the disciples were because they were protecting against that being faked. And so it wouldn't have been out of the question for them to come and move the body of Christ to a different place that they could perhaps keep more secure. And that's what Mary is assuming has happened. They've moved him and we don't know where he is. But as we read on, we come to verse 16. And Jesus says to her, as she's talking to him but not recognizing him yet, He says to her, Mary. He just calls her name according to John. And she turns and recognizes. They haven't just moved him. He is alive. The resurrection happened. And it compelled her to believe this is what actually took place. In verse 8, the same thing happens to John. He gets there. The other disciple, you know, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. He was compelled by the empty tomb to believe this actually happened. Christ actually rose in victory over sin. He actually rose in victory over death. And sure, his theology probably wasn't immediately fully developed about what all we would say, but but he believed these things have actually taken place. And then in verse 20, when the disciples living now in fear of the Jews have locked themselves in this room, Jesus appears to them and says to them, Peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and he shows them his side and they believe. They recognize this is actually 
him. This is Jesus Christ. The one that we followed. The one whose crucifixion we witnessed. We saw those wounds get made. And now he stands before us. This same Jesus. And they too were convinced of the resurrection. It had compelled them. Of course, if we go back again to 1 Corinthians 15, and we continue where we left off this time in verse 5, we read after Paul says what he says about things being in accordance with the Scriptures, he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why is Paul outlining this in this way? He's wanting the church at Corinth to understand. People witnessed the resurrection. There are eyewitnesses to Christ being alive again. This isn't just me operating off of some vision I had on the Damascus Road. No, 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 no. People saw him and understood and recognized and believed. They were compelled. This actually is Jesus. This is the guy that was crucified three days earlier. And now he's alive. Paul saying he appeared to all kinds of people, Corinthians. Many of them are still alive. He's essentially inviting them to check it out. Go find these people. Track down those who saw him. It wasn't just a secret thing where his followers huddled in this room saw him and nobody else bore witness to it. No, he appeared bodily and publicly that people might be compelled by his resurrection, that all that he had taught and all that he had proclaimed and all that he had promised was actually true. See, here's where we get to perhaps we could say the real issue of the gospel. The real real claim of the gospel. It's not just that we've got This wonderful kind of pastoral story about this guy who loved people well and healed the sick and did all of these noble altruistic things. And that this philosophy has grown up around his resurrection and by us believing he continues to live as we embody the same works that he did. No, no, no. The claim of the gospel is that this story, that Jesus lived, died on the cross, and rose on the third day before ascending to his Father, that this actually took place in history. This is why it matters that it's a compelling resurrection. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't rise, then our faith is in vain. We're we're above all to be pitied as fools for believing this. This is why it matters that that people saw him and were like, wait, no, this is Jesus. Jesus who was crucified. Jesus whom we buried. Jesus now alive. 
the people that knew him best saw him and were compelled to believe the story. So what does a compelling resurrection do for us? We once again go back to Romans 6, 11. If it really happened, if we're not fools because Jesus really did rise again and the promise of the resurrection really is true and life really is found in him, then you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our mortification to sin, our death to sin, our dying to sin, and our living to God in Christ Jesus depends intimately on the resurrection actually being true. If that didn't happen, then we can't believe this about ourselves. But precisely because it did, we can we can learn to think about ourselves differently. Not dead in sin, but dead to sin. Not dead to God, but alive in Christ. So we come to our third point then, that it was an effective resurrection. We see in verses 1 and 5 and 7 of John chapter 20 that the tomb really was empty. It it wasn't a scam. The body was gone. The clothes that they had wrapped him in and, and the cloth they had put over his face, they were there, but the body wasn't. The tomb was empty. We see in verse 18 and verse 20 that as Jesus appears, that that he appeared with his body, the body that had been crucified. Yes, it was glorified and Mary was kept from recognizing him until he spoke her name, but it was the body with the wounds of the nails, with the wound of the spear in his side. It was that body, glorified, risen, alive again. It was effective for Christ. But we see also in verse 22 and 23, as he stands before his disciples, he breathes on them and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. His resurrection was effective to bring about the promises that he had made that I am departing, but I will send one. My Father will send one who will be your helper, who will be your guide, who will intercede for you. Even the Holy Spirit. And here, resurrected, as he stands before his disciples, that promise is kept And they receive this one who would be their helper. This one that Jesus told them it's better to have than even Christ. That still blows my mind. That the spirit that we have if we are in Christ, that having him is better according to Jesus than having Jesus bodily with us. 
And then it's effective as he gives them authority to forgive and to withhold. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, in verses 12 through 20, we read in verses 12 through 19 first what we've already talked about that if Christ didn't rise, if he wasn't resurrected, then we're fools. Our faith is in vain. We should be out enjoying this beautiful morning on the golf course or the lake or Pinnacle Mountain or anything but sitting here if He didn't rise. But as Paul reminds us, and as we read earlier, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he tells us the effectiveness is that he's only the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. In other words, because Christ rose, all who die in him will rise with him. That's the effectiveness of his resurrection. That it didn't just do something for him. It wasn't just about him regaining life, but by claiming that victory, all of us who were found in him and all the saints before us who died in him and all who will come after that are united to him by faith, we too, if we die before he comes back, will rise in victory to life eternal because he did. That's the hope that we have. The resurrection was also effective in declaring to us something about Jesus and exactly who he was. In Romans chapter 1, we're reminded, chapter 1, verse 4, that with the resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. If he had just stayed there, he would have been shown to just have been a man with grandiose visions of himself. But he rose. And so showed himself to be the very son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord, who had given his life for you and I and all of his people throughout history. So once again, what do we do with this? What is the application? Why does it matter for us? If this is true, we also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection fulfilled Scripture. The resurrection compelled those who saw Him to believe. The resurrection was effective to complete our redemption. To gain victory over sin and death for the people of God. And so it changes when we're united to Him by faith 
how we think about ourselves. If we are united to the one who has claimed victory over sin and death, we no longer have to consider ourselves slaves to sin, slaves to death, dead in sin. No, 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 no. My dear Christian, you are dead to sin and you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because the resurrection actually took place. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you that Christ rose. We thank you that you sent him to die that we might have life. We thank you that he fulfilled the work you gave him to do. That he fulfilled all of Scripture in his death and resurrection. That he fulfilled his own prophecy showing himself to be the true prophet. We thank you that we're compelled by your Spirit to believe this story. We thank you that it was effective accomplishing that for which you sent your Son. And so we ask in light of this, would you now by your spirit help us to consider ourselves in light of this resurrection, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lift our eyes up that we might worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.